All right, good morning, or good evening, everybody. Beautiful night. I had to do what I hate, sitting in the front row, because I'm going to worship the whole time, and then I remember I can't, couldn't get my printer to work, and so I put all my notes on my phone, but I'm a good boy, and I leave my phone at home so I don't interrupt church service, so I had to get up in the middle of the worship and leave, and I apologize for that. I know it's a distraction, so um, next time I'll sit in the back until I know my mind is right again, so... Um, this evening we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Um, we'll finish this up tonight. Paul writing out of a prison cell to these folks, encouraging them. Spent the first three chapters um, just telling them how he feels about them and what's it's a long greeting, basically. But along with that, of course, Paul always slips in some doctrine, and of course we covered that. Now, the last two are going to be really important. Um, remember, he only had three Saturdays there. Three Sabbaths is how long he taught at this church before he left it. Um, so 21 days, probably. So he only taught three Saturdays. Now, we know they went home and studied on their own and all that, like they do, uh, like the Bereans. But for the most part, Paul got two. Now, his Saturdays are a little different than our Sundays. Our Sundays are an hour and a half, and then everybody's like, hey, you know, high V's waiting for me or whatever. Um, but he, he'd teach six, seven, eight hours, if not longer than that. So his Saturdays were pretty full. But he gave them so much, just within three teachings, um, he came, comes back to see how they're doing. The six months later, writes them back and says, I, I've heard you're doing well, but I wanted to clear up some questions you might have. In fact, he had spent uh, some of his time in those three Saturdays telling them about the coming of Jesus Christ. He got the eschatology. He was teaching about the coming of the Lord. Um, and obviously didn't, didn't sink in in some parts because they thought at this time that some of their folks, since Paul had gone, had died in that six-month period. And they're like, oh, man, they missed it. Their idea was if, he, if you're not walking around and breathing when Jesus comes back, you missed it. And so he's going to try to rectify that for them and, and help them to have some peace in their hearts and comfort them with some words here towards the end of this first chapter. But he's got some maintenance he wants to do. He begins in verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now he's going to tell us what commandments those were. Uh, we know that from the book of Acts, the Gentiles had specific commandments. They weren't necessarily what the Jewish people got. They simplified it for them because they wanted to be under grace. But he wanted to cover a few things here first. Um, you know how you receive from us how to walk and how to please God. We need to know that and uh, to understand that. He wanted them to know that. He wanted them to walk and please God. Our walk is a quiet walk. It's, it's our actions. Um, but everything we do should be to please God. For the most part, before we get saved, we live to please ourselves. Now, there were, there were moments maybe when, when you went to the soup kitchen and served a meal or something on a Christmas Eve or you donated a bunch of good clothes to the, to the help center, you know, near you. But if you checked your motivation on that, now that you're a believer, it was probably to make yourself feel good at that time. Well, it's Christmas. We ought to do more. You know, it just makes, it more, makes my Christmas a little better. It's blessed, you know, and we can mess it up with that. And so we live to please ourselves even in those instances. Or every other way. I mean, we live to please ourselves. The kind of car we want, the kind of person we are, the kind of way people ought to act around us. We get mad at other drivers because they've inconvenienced us and so on. 
So we live for ourselves. But when you become a Christian, when you're a follower of Jesus, you no longer walk that way. You live to please God. What's pleasing to God in everything? In everything that I do, what's pleasing to God? Is this pleasing to God? If Jesus was to come back right now, would he be pleased with what I'm doing? This would be a good time for Jesus to come back right now, wouldn't it? Where were you when Jesus came back? In church, worshiping and listening, you know, hearing his word, sitting at, his, sitting at the, the feet of the Holy Spirit and his word, you know, great place to be. There's other places I'd rather him not come back when I'm there kind of thing. Those, those times, you know. But Paul says, I want you to more and more. I know that you're doing well, but I want to exhort you and urge you to do more and more, to abound in it. It doesn't stop once you think you've got it. it keep, keep going. There's, there's depth there, you know, to keep walking with the Lord. Not just saved, not just baptized, not just have a membership someplace or own a Bible or even have your quiet time down pretty regularly, but to walk that way to please him in everything that you do, no matter what it is. For we know, what, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, his commandments. Here are some of them. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, then colon. And he tells us what that sanctification is. We'll, we'll go back and touch on that here in a minute. That you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So he gets right to it. First of all, his sanctification, that's, that's God's will for us. Is, what's God's will for me? He wants you to be sanctified, to be set apart. He wants you to be different. Um, we've just been through Numbers and Deuteronomy and the Old Testament. Those first five books were pretty, um, pretty detailed when it came to the temple and how things were to be done there. And we know that there were lots of vessels used throughout the worship service, but some were sanctified just for the temple. Others were earthen vessels. You go do this, that, or the other thing with them. But for the, the ones for the temple, those were made of gold. Those were sanctified. They, were, they had a sacrifice put over them. The blood was put on them. Um, uh, they would sprinkle the blood. They would wash them in a specific kind of way. All these things. And we thought when we were reading it going, oy vey, you know, gold vessels, more blood, more platters. How many platters? How many pitchers? And you kind of get to the place where what difference does it make? Well, it does. Because when you get to the New Testament, Jesus calls us vessels. That should, set, that should set off bells. And if you've never studied the Old Testament, you wouldn't know what he meant. What do you mean a vessel? So I'm like a clay pot. We are. And he, and he gives other things. But if you've never read that they're supposed to be sanctified for the use of God Almighty only, not to be used for any other purpose, but just to serve God. Now you get a better understanding of why he spent so much time in detail telling us what he did to these gold platters or silver platters. Because he wanted to set them apart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6-7, through 7, it says this, For it is the God who, command, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Cast down, but unconquered. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. 
So there, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, likened our bodies, or us, as these earthen vessels. We know what earthen vessels are. They were the common vessels. They weren't necessarily special, but they contained something special. It was what they contained that mattered. And of course, Paul was teaching that. Now, if you get to 2 Timothy, verses, chapter 2, verses 20 through 21, look what he says. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. The picture here should become more and more clear as we read God's Word. And we wrote, if you read from cover to cover, boy, you get a really good picture just on vessels alone. You could, do, you could do a whole marriage retreat on vessels. You could do a whole men's retreat on vessels, a women's retreat just on the vessels. We're sanctified. We're set apart. We were an earthen vessel, but we've cleansed ourselves. We've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been changed. The sacrifice has been given to us. We're now set apart, sanctified, to be used in the temple of God for his good pleasure, to contain his good news. And he calls us to that. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's what he wants. Now, I can mess things up. They even talked about what happens when a vessel gets messed up, when it becomes unclean, when it becomes polluted and what they would need to do for it. We need to be careful of that. Our vessels have been set apart. These bodies have been set apart for specifically to honor God in all that we do, to please Him in, in every way that we live and walk. That's what these vessels are for. And so he says, and here's why you do it. Here, here's why we don't fall into these sexual sins, because those are all sexual sins that he discussed here. And he's specific on those things. The Roman and Greek culture were... I mean, just rife with this. Uh, sexual sin was rampant. That's just how you became one with your God. There were just all sorts of ways. We don't need to go into detail, but it was perversion probably like we've never seen before. And you can imagine how bad that is than living here in our country where it seems like pornography is just everywhere you look. But this is actually physically going out and person-to-person -person kind of moment. And it's accepted and it's looked upon as, yes, good for you, you know, kind of thing. They're proud of it. And Paul says, you need to be different than that. We're called to be set apart. We don't want to be like the world. We don't want to live in that way anymore. We don't want to walk that way. It's not pleasing to God. We want to move to a different way. And so he names these things. No sexual immorality that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification honor. In other words, it's up to us to keep it clean. He'll cleanse it when we make mistakes, when we sin, but it's up to us to keep us from being used that way. It's not okay, is what he's saying. We just have to understand this, that it is sin. Any kind of sex outside of marriage is sin. Let me walk through some things with you here because I don't want to, I want us to all learn. Because every one of us can point to sexual sins over there. We got to be, you know, yeah, we know that's wrong. We know that the news media is wrong about that, that the world's wrong about that. We know that rainbow flag, and we're really good at that, but we got to be careful. N not, to call it, not to not call it sin. It is sin, but to understand it the way God sees it and understands it. Verse 11 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, that was a hard way to tell you that address. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He goes through the list of the sexual sins and other sins as well, but one of them being homosexuality. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were that. 
But that vessel is not who you are anymore. You've been taken out of that. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We've been taken away from that. We've been removed from that. Um, Several times he talks about um, different places in the Bible. I didn't write them all down because there's too many, but of the sexual sins. And uncleanness is, is always with it. There's homosexuality, there's, there's, there's all these other sins as well, uh, bestiality, uh, all, all of them. I, don't, I guess I don't want to list them all off. And uncleanness is always tacked on to that. It is unclean. So we understand this and understand each other and understand God. The Corinthian church was practicing this still. And Paul had to write to them to tell them to stop practicing this because you were sanctified, justified, set apart. You're different now. In other words, you're supposed to stop. And that goes with everything, with all of these sins. Any kind of sexual immorality, you need to know how to possess your own vessel. Your vessel will take you places you don't want to go. Your flesh will constantly be telling you, go here, go there, do that. It's up to us to no longer be led by the flesh, but to be led by the Spirit and to walk that way. It's never going to shut up. Some people hope that somehow or another it's just going to stop, and we reckon the old man dead, but it is just a reckoning because he ain't dead and she ain't dead. And that flesh will always, if given the opportunity, will call us back to that, to what our former purpose was, to be a vessel of dishonor. It will always take us there. And we need to remind ourselves, and this is where you need to be careful and remind yourself that you're a child of God, you're a daughter of God, you're a son of God, You're a brother of Jesus. You're a sister of Jesus. You're in the family of God now. You are royalty. You are a priest and you are a king in God's kingdom. He tells us that. Priests and kings, Revelation 1. And so when you understand that about yourself, it's a lot easier than to say, no, I'm not going there with my flesh. I don't care what my flesh says. I'm not that. And to do that would be dishonoring to him, to myself as a vessel, and what I carry, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you understand that about yourself, it's a lot easier to say no to the flesh. If you don't understand that about yourself, and you've had a particularly bad day, and I mean bad by not walking with the Lord very well, sinning, blowing your witness, whatever it may be, it's a lot easier, now that your guard's down, to go ahead and give in. Well, what difference does it make now? I'll start fresh tomorrow, but for now, I'm going to indulge. And they fall into it, or we can fall into it. And Paul says, no, know how to possess your vessel. Own it. You run it. This body that God has given us, this flesh and blood that isn't us, but what contains our spirit and our soul, it isn't us. It has a lot of appetites. It tells us to do this, that, or the other thing. We need to know that our spirit is in charge. The Holy Spirit is in charge of us now. And to respond that way. No, you don't get to do that anymore. I mean, you may feel schizophrenic talking to yourself sometimes, but do it. No. Let your ears hear it. Make your mouth say it if you have to. Maybe quietly so no one else hears you talking to yourself, but sometimes it's important. Scream it if you have to. It's okay to do war, to make battle, you know. It's okay to fight. Because you're fighting for God and you're fighting for this vessel and you want to be used and be sanctified for this purpose, to serve Him. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. I think that's interesting, the way he words that. I was trying to reconcile that. He called us to, un- he didn't call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. 
it seems like those should be reversed. He didn't call us in uncleanness, but to holiness. That makes sense to me, doesn't it? I'm unclean, but he's calling me to holiness. And here I am on my journey to holiness. That makes sense. It's not how he puts it. He specifically puts it, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. What does that tell you? Where's our starting point? Holy. God starts us at holy because we're in Jesus. We're in Christ. It's up to us to walk away from the holiness into the uncleanness. It's not for me to get to holy. I'm there. You're there. It's up for me to forget it and to walk back into uncleanness. It's like being in the promised land saying, let's go back to Egypt. I'm there. I have to physically walk back to it. That makes the battle a little easier when you understand the concept, I think. I'm not trying to be holy and I failed again, like trying to jump up and then keep falling down and you keep trying to push that rock up the hill and it keeps rolling back on top. It's the other way around. I'm at the top of the hill. It's up to me to push it downhill. Well, that's kind of easy. All I have to do is kind of balance it up here and keep it here. Just stay. That's all we have to do is stay in that place of holiness. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this, this is important, rejects Corinthians, rejects all the other places that talk about sexual immorality, any kind of sex outside of marriage, any kind of homosexuality, sodomy, bestiality, any of those things. Anybody that rejects these things doesn't reject man. Oh, that church of yours... They're so backward, they're so Victorian, they're so, uh, you know, 1900s or 1800s, they're so, you know, they haven't come up with the times, they're not modern up, they're not relevant, you'll hear. No, you're not rejecting man or their church or their denomination, you are rejecting God. It's God's plan, it's God's idea, it's God's idea that these are his thoughts, these are, this is his uh, law, this is his word. That's how he feels about it. It's not man's interpretation. You, you can't interpret this any other way. I, if someone said, well, that's your interpretation of the Bible, just show them the Scripture. But then you tell me what this, read it, and then tell me what it means. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, you are no longer homosexuals. You were those things, but now you've been cleansed from that. Well, tell me what that means if it doesn't mean what it means. They don't have anything to say. They just don't like what it says. And so understand that. They're not rejecting you or me or the the church that you go to. They are rejecting God, who has also given us His Holy Spirit. Now that's, he's leading into his next point, the Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. We've heard about it. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. I like those verses. Aspire to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your own hands. That sounds Midwestern, doesn't it? like that. It's kind of who we are, you know? That ain't my problem. That's not what it means. Remember who's writing this down. Paul. Paul aspired to lead a quiet life. How many riots did he start? Paul minded his own business. He did. But then look what he did. Paul worked with his own hands. Well, that's a no-brainer. We know he did. He's a tent maker. But those first two are kind of hard for me to not to say, well, Paul's a little hypocritical, isn't it? Really, mind your own business. What were you doing with the unknown God thing up on Mars Hill? 
minding your own business? What were you doing there in the great as the goddess Diana? Minding your own business? How many times you get beat up? Here's the thing. Paul's heart was leading a quiet life. It was minding his own business. What the writer here is saying, what, what Paul is saying to these folks is, don't be a busybody. Don't be worried about what other people's sins are. Worry about your own sins. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine, and those around you will be saved. He's not saying now, don't talk about Jesus with anybody because that causes problems, or don't just try to walk the walk and, and in all, you know, share the gospel, and if all else fails, use words. No. Paul used words all the time. Paul's heart was, from humility, he shared the gospel. Not to start an argument, not to start a fight. He desperately saw people who needed Jesus. That's how he came at everybody he saw. This person needs Jesus desperately. Not this person needs to be know that they're wrong about Jesus or that they're wrong about their sin. He looked at people as victims, as people at a hospital, as patients of his. And so he came at them that way with the gospel because it was the antidote, it's the medicine, it's the fix, it's the cure. And so aspiring to lead a quiet life was exactly what he did. You guys must know. And their response, well, it's like a wild animal who's trying to be treated by a vet. The vet wants to do what he has to do to help them or even a tame animal who's hurt. You know that they can put up quite a fight. All these things that came from Paul's quiet life. I, it could have been quiet if they just received the word. It could have been quiet if they just received the gospel. He wasn't trying to pick a fight, but he desperately needed to share the truth with them so that they weren't infected with the lie anymore. And so I want to be a person who aspires to lead a quiet life, but not one that's inactive, not one that's a hermit, not one that's shunned the world and stays in his cubicle. I'm called to aspire to lead a quiet life. In other words, I take care of myself and make sure that I'm walking with the Lord and I see everybody else in need of Jesus or at least a touch from a Christian brother or sister, even if they're believers. I'm not here to make sure that you don't sin or you don't sin. Some people would like me to do that. You know they're sinning over there? Really? Why don't you go tell them to, to do something about it? I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to tell them about the gospel. Um, Sin is a disease. Sin is a problem. Sin is something that needs to be cured. Sin is a choice. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to... When you call it a disease, you've got to be careful. I don't want people to think, well, it's just nothing I can do about it. I'm, I'm disease-ridden. No, no, no. No, you've been given an antidote. It's like, uh, it's like going to a place that has food poisoning all the time and you just keep going back to eat. Sometimes you just got to find a different restaurant. You know. I want to aspire to lead a quiet life. One that's quietly walking with Jesus. One that's very openly walking with Jesus, but quietly. Taking care of myself. Making sure that my walk is, is solid. To mind my own business. I take care of myself. I want to make sure that I'm walking with the Lord. I want to make sure that my quiet time is good. That I understand God's Word. That I'm prayed up. That I'm ready. I'm not to spend my life making sure that you're ready. That you're prayed up. That you're having your quiet time. I'm here to mind my own business and to work hard with your own hands. Now, this is also very practical. Don't run around being a busybody. Don't get into other people's lives. Get to work. Take care of your home and your family and your needs. It's, it's, it's interesting how much parental advice people give me whose kids aren't walking with the Lord. I'm sorry. Let's get your kids walking with the Lord. Then you can, then you can share your vast knowledge of wisdom with me, you know? Um, 
aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, not, not suggested, not encouraged, we commanded you to do that. In other words, you've got to make a switch here. We're leaving, Thessalonians. It's been three weeks. You're on your own. Good luck with your church. I'm sure it'll be fine. We'll be praying for you. But here's what I want you to do. Stop having sex with everybody all the time. That's no, that's no longer, not going to do that anymore. And you need to start working with your own hands. Don't wait for other people to work for you. And I want you to live a quiet life. Aspire to that. Work for that. Um, don't be, you know, loudmouth. And uh, mind your own business. You know, mind your own business. Take care of your business. What's going on with you in, in your life? Pay attention to that. That's the best witness you can have is a solid walk with Jesus on your own and those around you will get saved. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. In other words, I don't want you to sit back waiting for Jesus to come. Remember the Jerusalem church did that? They pulled everything together, all the resources, a lot of rich people, a lot of poor people all came together. Jesus was coming back in any day and that's true. He is still and they pulled all their stuff, but they, they quit. And then they ran out of stuff, and Jesus didn't come back. And now they've got to get to work again and make those things up and realize, wait, I'm, I'm to occupy till he comes. There's, there's work to do, you know. He says, don't fall into that trap of just sitting back. There's been a lot of people have done that. You can read stories about that. A prophet might tell them, you know, God's coming back in 1988. And they believe it with all their heart to the point where they sell everything they have and they go out in the desert and they sit on that mesa and they wait because he's coming back. And then 89 shows up and he ain't here. And they got to find a way down that mesa because the ladder fell when they went up there. Now they got to go get a job. Where have you been working for last year? Well, geology? Well, on top of a mesa looking at dirt and rocks for a long time. Astronomy? Now you got to go back to work now work, and that you may lack nothing. Verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. So when Paul writes that, that's something for us to take note of. He doesn't want us to be without knowledge on this matter concerning those who have fallen asleep or died. Now, Paul makes a distinction when he talks about a believer dying because they don't really die, die. In other words, there's no second death for them. There's no hell waiting for them. They're asleep. They're in the kingdom of God. It's that kind of death. Their eyes close here and wake and they open up in heaven. That's, so he says it's a sleep. Now, he doesn't mean soul sleeping. Some take that and believe it's soul sleeping. They're in a, they're in a, they're in a state of, of rest waiting for Jesus to come. So like in this limbo uh, or lim, whatever uh, place, um, they're not. He's just making a distinction between a believer and an unbeliever. A believer who's, who's died is asleep. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. When Jesus returns, Revelation 19.11, you can read that. It's longer than that, but that's about the area. When Jesus comes back on his white horse, I can read it to you, I guess. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's the saints he's talking about. Come back with him, those who have fallen asleep. 
So we're com- they're coming back when Jesus comes back, but not till then, not till this point here. And that's at the end of the Great Tribulation period. That'll be all of us. We'll all be there. But their thought was, oh, you know, Bob died. He missed it. Poor Bob, you know. Come on, Edith, hang on. Jesus ain't come back yet. I mean, they really thought they were losing me. He says, no, 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 no. I don't want you to sorrow as if you have no hope. No. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. He said that to the Corinthians in verse, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. It's instantaneous. You close your eyes here, you open your eyes there. It's automatic. Don't worry. Bob's in heaven. Bob was a believer. He loved Jesus. He's there. And he's going to come back with him. And we all are. So don't be concerned about it. Now, for this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, we're not going to get to heaven first. Those who have died before us are already there. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be with the Lord always. We shall always be with the Lord. He's talking about the rapture there. Now, a lot of people get confused about this. They're like, wait a minute. You just said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That means they're already there. And here it says that the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then the rapture takes place. So which is it? Because if I digged up Aunt Edith tonight, and I opened up her coffin, her bones are still there. She's not resurrected. I mean, she's gone, but she's, her physical body's there. So what resurrection is talking about? Well, a lot of people have opinions on it, so I'll give you mine. Some people think that they're disembodied spirits that we're waiting for our bodies to be pulled up so that they can be remanufactured and turned into those awesome vessels that we're going to get. I don't think so because Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the word there is more like an abode. Some people think it's like literally mansions, like there's going to be pillars and marble and and stone and and carvings and things like that. I, I think he's talking about our bodies our new vessels, our upgraded hardware, basically. These are going to work for now, but eventually we're going to need an upgrade, and I think he's making those for us. He's going to do that for us. I think what we forget is, remember when Paul was caught up into the third heaven? This will get a little deep. Try to, I'm sorry, not deep, but not that you can't handle it, but it's a little, we're straying pretty far away from the text, let me put it that way. He was caught up into the third heaven, and everybody's like, what's it? There's three heavens. What's up with that? Well, we've talked about this. The day, you see the blue sky, that's, that's first heaven. Um, nighttime, you see the night sky, that's the universe. You see the second heaven. The third heaven is outside of all of this. That's where God lives. And so Paul wasn't in the first heaven. It's like he went up 2,000 feet, 20,000 feet. He didn't go up into, the sp- into space, however many feet that needs to be before you're actually in space. He went beyond that. He went all the way to where God is. That's outside of creation. That's out of space. That's out of matter. That's out of time. See, that's something we can't comprehend, to be outside of time. We can't get it. So here's the thing. This will blow your mind. But when John, in the book of Revelation, saw the multitude singing all the choruses and songs to Jesus, they saw you there as believers. John saw you there. It's, it's done. He's outside of time. I was there. You were there. John was there. That would have been weird. Hey, there I am, third row. You know, 
I don't know, maybe he didn't. Maybe, maybe he just saw us and he was up there or whatever, but he's outside of time. It was there. So, so whoever's died, one of your loved ones has died, they're there and they have their body. But we who are in time haven't seen that body rise yet, but as far as they're concerned, they've already got it. It's already happened, so it's a done deal. In fact, it's all done for them. If you can track that, follow that. It blows my mind. I don't think about it too much because smoke starts coming out of my ears when I do that, but that's the idea. No, 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 they're fine. Bodies will be taken up. We'll probably see them all go up. All that will happen, but as far as they're concerned, it's already done. So they're not disembodied spirits. They're, they're there. Um, and they've got their new bodies. They've got their upgrades to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Now, caught up, the rapture. There's lots of views on the rapture. The rapture is the taking away. The, the word there, caught up, some will tell you the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's not there. It absolutely is there. People don't understand linguistics. They don't understand how things are translated. The, the word here, caught up, is harpazo in the Greek. The word harpazo in the Greek changed to Latin is rapturus. This is where we get our English word rapture. It's there. They just, so if the word rapture bothers you, fine. We're waiting for the, cut up in, the caught up in this, you know, or whatever you want to say. It just doesn't flow off the tongue. You know? But there is going to be a radical departure of the believers who are alive. When Jesus comes back, they're going to be taken home without any bodily death, just boom, they're gone. There's a rapture that takes place. That's exciting. Now, there's four views on that. Aren't you excited for that? When? When is the rapture going to take place? Well, I'll start off with what all Calvary chapels believe, and most, I would say, believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that the church is going to go home before the wrath of God comes on the face of the earth. We believe that. We believe in Revelation chapter 4, we see some uh, wording there, as uh, John is writing this out, he says, come up here, and it's the voice of a trumpet, come up here. And then we see in 5 and 6, the, John gets to see what's going on in heaven, and then chapter 6 starts, which is the great tribulation period, and so we believe that's actually sequential, that God is going to bring us up, and chapter 6 begins, and five and six, or 4 and 5 tell us what's going on in heaven. Okay, that's a pre-tribulation view. We believe we're taken up because we don't believe we're destined for wrath. And he's going to tell us that. We're not destined for wrath. There's a mid-tribulation. Some people believe that we're going halfway through. So in other words, we go through cataclysmic events, and then three and a half years into it, once Satan sits himself, or the Antichrist sits himself on the throne, um, that we get taken up at that time. And that's when we go up. Others believe there's a pre-wrath view. In other words, we go through all the cataclysmic events of the Antichrist trying to kill us. That's just normal persecution, bad persecution, but normal. But when God actually steps in and starts bringing his wrath, we get taken out before that, and that kind of covers it. We're still mid, and we're not getting God's wrath, so therefore we're okay with all the rest of the scriptures. Maybe. Um, the problem with that is in chapter 6, at the beginning of the Great Tribulation in, in, in Revelation, it says that the people cry out from the rocks and physically state the wrath of God has come upon the sons of man. He's coming upon us right now. And so even they recognize it as God's wrath beginning at the first year of the Great Tribulation period. So you've got scriptural problems with that. And then there's those that believe in a post-tribulation rapture, which I just have no idea how they get that. People just, they like to be preppers. They like to get their guns and their ammo and their food and dig a hole in the ground and live underground because we're going to go through it. We better be prepared for it. And there's a lot of folks that like that. And there is an appeal to that, isn't that guy? There's a, yeah, weapons, bullets, target practice, bulletproof vests, shooting my neighbor who's trying to get peanut butter from me. 
That doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, when you really follow it through, when this all goes down, if you're a post-tribulation guy and people are coming, now we were hungry, back off, I'm a Christian, you know, <laughs> it doesn't really hold any water at all. Come in, eat all my food, we'll just die of starvation sooner. I mean, I don't, it doesn't make any sense. So um, we're pre-trib, personally. Um, we believe that it makes the most sense. It follows the scriptures and um, you really don't have to do any you know, gymnastics with scriptures or twist them in any shape to, to get that. It just kind of works. So um, anyway, the rapture. Hey, we're looking forward to that. He wants them. Verse 18, the most important verse of the whole chapter. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort. Be comforted of that. We want you looking for Jesus and be comforted. Now, if you're a post-tribulation guy or a pre-wrath or a mid and you think that Telling people that eventually you're going to be raptured and brought to that great white throne judgment seat, that's not comforting. See, there is no judgment seat for us. There's the Bema seat judgment seat of Jesus Christ, which is the judgment seat of like an Olympic judge, where your rewards are given and your diadems are given or your crowns are given at that time. We are judged that way as Christians. But there is no wrath. There is no penalty or punitive. Uh, there's, there's nothing from God coming to us. There's no wrath coming to us at all. And so we don't get taken up. That, that's why these words are comforting. That's why Paul's able to tell them, look up, Jesus is coming soon. The rapture is going to take place or you're going to die and be present with the Lord instantaneously. Either way, it's a win-win. It's exciting. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And it was supposed to bring them peace. It was supposed to. Now, chapter 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, most women are looking for those labor pains. They're excited when they start. In fact, they, they get those Braxton Hicks contractions, and you're like, oh, is this it? No, it's not. And then days later, then they actually start. So they get a little disappointed. They're looking forward to that first pain. They recognize their size. They've counted the days. They know that they're past nine months. This baby needs to come out. And that's the kind of thought we're supposed to have as Christians. We're supposed to be thinking there ain't nothing left for Jesus to do. No more prophecies. Things are looking kind of funny outside. How many blood moons have we had this year? I'm kind of tired of looking at the blood moons already. They're not blood. They're kind of orange when I look at them. They're really not that red. I, I don't think it has anything to do with it. I'm looking for Jesus to come back. I'm not looking for blood moons. Um, he can come at any time for me. Um, and I look forward to that. He could come tonight. He could come tomorrow. He could come 100 years from now. I don't know when he's coming. But everything's in place. Nothing else has to be done. And things look more interesting each and every day. In other words, there's a little more pain over here, a little more war over here little funny political figure over here rising up, maybe over in Rome or something, or somewhere over there that we think, hey, maybe, you know. But we don't, he never, Paul never says, now look around and make sure that you can see everything that's going on. No, we understand what the clouds say. We understand that there's rain coming, but we don't know when. Jesus tells them that in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. He says specifically when they asked him, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. 
I don't want you thinking about that. I want you to think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is going to happen to you in a little bit, Jesus said, in Jerusalem. And then witness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about that stuff. Now, it doesn't mean we don't study it and think about it. He also criticized those who didn't recognize his coming. You guys read the Torah all the time, and you didn't know that I was coming today? You didn't know the Messiah was supposed to come now? You should have. Now, so as Christians, we've got two things going on. I know Jesus can come back at any moment, and hopefully you do too. And are you ready for it? Are you ready? And the second thing is, I need to occupy till he comes, which means I go about my business. I go about being that Christian, walking, and taking care of the good works that he has for me to walk in. I'm supposed to do those things. I don't neglect those things. I don't sit on top of a mountain waiting for him. I occupy, and I do battle, and I do war. He trains my hands for battle, my fingers for war. He's called us to that, spiritually. But you, brethren, are not in drunk or darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Although he is coming as a thief, in other words, we don't know when, we ought to be watching. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. That's a hard thing to do if you've ever had to stand watch before. It's boring and boring and boring until it's not boring. (laughs) It's boring as long as there's nothing going on, but then when something happens, oh boy, your adrenaline goes and everything goes off. I never had a serious incident like that where it was an actual, but a lot of training in those areas. And I tell you what, every time they would come at four in the morning or five in the morning, just before dawn, darkest part of the time, last part of our watch, we've been looking out at nothing, at black, for two and a half hours, and then all of a sudden the flash comes from a rifle fire. You know, it was fake, you know, it was dummy rounds or whatever, but oh boy, that'll wake you up real quick. I don't want to be asleep. I want to be sober. I want to be vigilant. I want to be walking that way. And the longer I walk with Jesus, and the longer you walk with Jesus, the easier it is to just get lethargic, to become complacent. And so he warns them of that. He's warning them that after six months. Don't get complacent after six months. Some of us have been Christians for 25, 26, 28 years, longer than that. Don't be complacent. Any day, every day could be the day. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And for those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. In other words, if you're dead or whether you're alive when he comes, we are living together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Keep that up. You know, we've, we, back in the day, we don't use this word anymore, but the word is Maranatha. Maybe on Sunday mornings you heard a specific brother yell out, Maranatha, every now and then, because he's old school. Well, the idea behind saying Maranatha was, the Lord cometh. He's coming. And so that's how they greet each other as the church. Maranatha, and the other person say, Maranatha. And that's how you encourage each other through the day. I'm off to my slave work job. I'm going to punch in. When a brother looks at you, he says, Maranatha. You're like, yeah, that's right. He's coming any day now. Just a good reminder. Maranatha, you know. I don't know if we could find a new modern word for that maybe, but now you know. Maranatha. Encourage one another in that. Remind each other of that. 
when you find yourself debating, I don't know if I should take this job or that job, or I don't know if I should get this car or that car, or move to this place or that place, Maranatha. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he could come back tomorrow, and this is a moot point, you know. All right, let me think of it in that light then. I mean, you still need to think it through and pray it through and do what God wants you to do, but Maranatha, you know, Jesus is coming. Therefore, comfort each other and, and do that for one another. Um, he had said earlier that the Holy Spirit teaches us all things. I kind of glossed over that, but I don't want to leave that because that's part of this expectant return of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is always testifying of Christ in us and to others, always. And we have that Holy Spirit. He is always teaching us, always teaching us. And be encouraged in that. So when you have that sense, look at your starting point. My starting point is from holiness. Uh, my starting point is from an assured salvation um, from a destination that's ready for me, that Jesus has prepared a body for me. Um, remember that for me to walk in the flesh now is for me to walk away from that. I, I live in that. I want, to, I want to walk in that. All my decisions need to be made with that understanding. And so comfort each other because someday you'll need comforting and other days they'll need comforting. We all won't need comforting on the same time. There's going to be comforters there's going to be those who are comforted, you know. Be ready to be either one of those, you know. Be ready to hear that comfort from other people, but also be ready to give it. I think sometimes we, we don't think we're as important as we are. You are very important in other people's lives to comfort them, to bring them that comfort, that word of knowledge, that word of encouragement, just that joy to your husband, to your wife, to your kids, just to start their day off my husband's fine. He's tough. He's, he's always been there. He's rock solid. We are, for the most part. We're supposed to be. But there's nothing wrong with placing your hand on his shoulders or around his waist and saying, I love you. I have confidence in you. I know that God is leading you. Whatever you need to say. Or <laughs> may have a weird word to him. Maranatha, honey. That'd be an odd way to go off to work. Give him a kiss and say, Maranatha. He won't know what to do with that, probably. But we need it. And guys, same thing. Coworkers, wives, kids, they all need that. Especially little kids. Little kids and big kids, teenagers especially, they need that encouragement from you. You're very, very important to them. It doesn't have to be your kids either. Any kid. Every single kid. Um, you'll know it because they'll look at you. How do I know that I'm supposed to say something to that little kid? That little kid will be looking at your eyes. They need something. Because they don't pay attention to you any other time except when they need something, right? And if they're quiet and looking you in the eye, encourage them. Boy, you're a cute little kid. I like you. You're just super nice. You know, I like that one thing you did. Whatever it is, encourage them. Bring them build them up. Build those kids up. They need it. You can't build a kid up enough. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So he must have set up a church system, some kind of governmental system, uh, remember those guys are, that are doing that, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you and in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. I want to see that. Now we exhort you, brethren. Warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourself and for all. Don't forget to do that. 
It's okay to warn those who are unruly. And I don't mean warn them like you're going to get it, but warn them, you know where that leads, right? I mean, we, we all study, I know where that leads me if I do that. And it's going to lead you in the same place. It's not going to end well. You know. Don't lord it over them, but warn them like Paul's warning these folks. Go ahead and do that, the unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Some people are faint-hearted at times. You don't want to be that person all the time. Some people thrive being faint-hearted. They're identified by their weaknesses or they find themselves in their infirmities. That's who they are. That's all they have. There's no depth to them. They don't know their own heart. They don't know their own soul. They don't know their relationship with Jesus very well. And so this is broken or that's a problem or this is a problem becomes who they are. They're the sympathy people. They need empathy and they need sympathy constantly. You don't want to be that if you're that person. Now, on the other hand, as a, as a believer, when those people need help, when anybody needs help, be sure you help them and encourage them. Out of it. Out of it. You don't want to leave them there. So comfort those who are faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Um, there's some that just don't... It's physical, true. Um, but it's also spiritual. They're young maybe, or in the Lord, or, or whatever. Um, or they have a, they've got an area of their life where they're just not solid yet in the Lord. There's a sin that just keeps kind of rising back up again. Um, we want to be there for them. We want to uphold the weak. Be patient with all. Any one of those people needs patience. The unruly, the, the faint-hearted, the weak. Um, we want to have patience with them. Patience has a perfect work. Time does a lot for someone. I, um, just walking with the Lord for years, I don't care how fast you grow, just stay walking with the Lord for years, it becomes more stable. It just does. Time makes it more stable. The longer you walk with Jesus on a regular basis, even if you're not having a lot of victory, I mean, I hope you do, but if you don't, it's not about that. It's about time. There are seasons that you go through. Um, that's how you become the oak tree. Oak trees, man, those oak trees out by the swing sets are growing slowly slowly, driving me crazy. We, I, don't have, I don't have 30 years to see these things big. I want to pull them up and I want to plant like 50-year-old trees out there is what I want. It's not going to happen. But it's slow. But there's a reason for that slow growth. There's, there's wet seasons. There's a, right now is the best season for these trees, honestly. The growth ring this year is going to be super narrow. But it's what makes it strong. Then you have the wet years, and it's a real wide growth ring, and that's, that's okay too, and that's staggering. That different sizes is what makes the difference. It causes them to be a little bit flexible, but also makes them very sturdy. Same for us. We want to have patience with people. Don't throw your hands up in the air when they keep falling into it. Did they repent? Did they say they're sorry? Are they back in church? Are they praying again? Are they reading their word for the 12th time this year? They've decided to come back to God? At least they're coming back to God. You know, be patient with them. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. A lot of people don't like that verse. I want to rejoice also. There's always a reason to be joyful, and the reason to be joyful is because we're going to be with Jesus someday, and he's coming back for us. No matter what your circumstances are tonight, you're going to heaven, and whatever your circumstances are tonight, they'll be gone. They won't even matter anymore. Pray without ceasing. That's in a constant state of prayer. In other words, you're in a constant communion with God. It doesn't mean you're on your knees all day long in your house. It means that you're constantly in communion with God. You just think of Him when you're driving. 
you're praising Him or you're, you're thinking and you're talking with Him even to yourself and to Him. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Later on, he says, for everything, give thanks. But in everything, give thanks. Thank you, God. Thank you for this dry weather. <laughs> really? <laughs> Farmer says, really? Yes. Thank you. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I don't know how it is or why it is, but this is the will. Thank you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Don't quench the Spirit, and we can. The Holy Spirit wants to move. He wants to use us. He wants to use you. You need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's got gifts for you. All the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. The Bible never says that they're not. Men say that they're not, but the Bible never says that they've stopped. In fact, we see them in use by the apostles throughout the book of Acts after Jesus. Other apostles getting saved, other people getting saved, gifts being used. It never, ever ends. So don't quench the Spirit by just saying, I don't believe that. Don't quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Some people don't like prophecies. But not to despise them. Some people may have a word for the Lord for, from, from the Lord for you um, or for some other things. Don't despise prophecies. And don't despise the prophecies that have been written down either. And love every bit of them. There were times when people would say, I don't know how Jesus can be or the Messiah can be a, a ruling king and a dying prince. How can that possibly be? And so they despised the dying part. We like the king part. We don't like the dying part. They despise those prophecies. Don't. It all worked together for good. Now along with that, don't receive every prophecy either. Not everybody that says, thus says the Lord, is speaking from God. A lot of them are speaking from their own heart. And so what do we do? Test all things. If it's true, it'll happen. If it's not, it won't. And you're a false prophet. So we test all things. And we hold fast to what is good, and we don't hold fast to what isn't good. That's what's not said. Abstain from every form of evil. It's not how far away from God you can get and still be saved. Stay close to the shepherd. Be as Christian as you can be. Be as much like Christ as, as you can each and every day and grow in that. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely or completely set you apart. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. I love that. If God has called you into a ministry, he will be faithful to do it. And that's what you trust in. That's what you rest in. And whatever ministry God's called you to do, and he has called you to a ministry. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. We'll practice that tonight. I charge, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's heart as he was sitting in prison, not thinking of himself, but thinking of others. I wonder how the Thessalonians are doing. And he writes this beautiful letter to them to encourage them in their walk. They had concerns. They had things that were breaking their hearts. What about my relative that had died? And Paul wanted to alleviate that pain that they were going through, that doubt. Lord, help us to be those kind of people. No matter what our circumstances are, help us not to be looking for those to take care of us, but Lord, help us to be looking to take care of others make sure that they're doing better, that they're encouraged, that they're built up and lifted up. Help us to be your hands and feet. Help us to be like you, to be like Paul, to be like all the brothers 
in our lives that came along and built us up, all the sisters that came into our hearts and built us up, help us to be that for other people, Lord. Thank you that you let us do that. You want us to be a part of the ministry. So help us to have our eyes wide open and our hearts open and our, our, our mouths uh, open, ready to share whatever it is you have for us to share by your Spirit with love. Lord, I pray that you baptize us with your Holy Spirit. Fall upon us. Give us a fresh feeling. You did that for the apostles throughout the book of Acts. Not only in Acts chapter 2, but throughout their ministry, they get a fresh feeling over and over and over again. And we need that. We need that. So God, would you do that for us? And when you do that, I pray that you give us all the gifts that you think we need. I don't even want to ask for the ones um, that I think I need. I want you to give me the best gifts, whatever they are for my ministry, and whatever it is for their ministry here. Would you give us those gifts and help us to use those gifts, to not quench the Spirit, to pay attention to that prompting when you say, say this, do this, pray this, lay hands on them, whatever. Speak this, a prophecy, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, something. God, help us to be obedient to that and to walk by faith and to do these things by faith. Lord, bless these folks as they go tonight, as they travel home, give them a journey, a safe journey home, all four wheels on the road, Lord or two if they rode a motorcycle or a bike. Bless the kids. Thank you so much for them, God. We thank you for the teachers that are pouring their hearts out for these little kids that have studied up and prayed up and have prepared a lesson for them to learn more about you. Fill those teachers with your Holy Spirit. Fill them up afresh. Give them a, a refreshing, Lord, that they may need. Thank you for them looking into the eyes of our kids and ministering to them and building them up in you. Thank you for them, God. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, have a good rest of the night, guys. If you need prayer before you go, come on up for prayer. We'd be glad to pray with you.